0: Uh, hello and welcome to Sex. Actually, it's more uh, Hello and welcome to Sex News with Ray. I'm your host Ray, and today we are joined by Yona Siena. Yona has a BA in Classics from the University of King's College in Halifax where they were the vice president of the King's Pride Society. And because it's a BA in classics, that means that they're currently teaching Hebrew and Jewish topics, both privately and through various synagogues in Toronto, you know, as opposed to working in classes, and have lectured on disability, (laughs) mental health, and other topics. Yona is currently on the programming committee at the LGBTQ+, stuff at the Miles Adel JCC and will be taking Jewish studies at the graduate level this fall at the University of Cincinnati and also might end up one day as a rabbi's wife.
1: (laughs) Oh, that's the hope. That's the dream. Okay, so classics is ancient history, which includes the Bible and the commentaries on it. So it is relevant. My BA is relevant to the things that I'm doing now and the uh, graduate program that I'm going to be taking.
0: I do think it's really funny when you ask people, what did you go to school for versus what do you do now? And usually (laughs) the only people who have a relevant job are people in STEM or tech.
1: (laughs) Anyway. I spent a number of years as an ASL interpreter where my classics degree was not very entirely relevant to my day-to-day work, but uh, since the pandemic, I have not been able to get a lot of work in ASL interpreting. There are not a lot of big public events or things wow, that would have places guessed. where I used to do my work. Um, but I was also a Jew for hire at the same time. And so what used to be my side hustle has turned into my main hustle.
0: I really think ASL should be taught in schools as it an optional should. course. I wish that I had had more opportunities to learn ASL because I wish I imagine if in this time of COVID masks, we were all able to not have to worry about, oh, I can't hear you and just sign at each other. It's so good to have a nonverbal way of communicating.
1: So there's a concept in disability studies, which is called universal design, which is that making things accessible for people with disabilities or differences um, makes things better for everyone. So having captions on movies or TV shows or videos makes things better for people with who are deaf or who have hearing disabilities, for sure. But it also makes it better for second language learners. It makes it better for people with audio processing disorders or attention deaf, like ADD, like so many things.
0: I have none of those things. And I still watch TV with the subtitles on because I find that I sometimes when people mutter or are British, I can understand them perfectly. <laughs> Or are Irish, and they're starting to, you know, drink and saying they're ours, like or.
1: Yes, everyone should learn um, uh, their local sign language. There's not one sign language, it's not universal, and you should learn the sign language of the country that you're in, and you should be more accessible in general.
0: And on that note, today in Sex News... Passover facts you didn't learn in Hebrew school
1: oh I love this this
0: is from hey Alma from April 14th 2020
1: Ray can you tell us what hey Alma is
0: hey Alma is one of, it's it's just a Jewish online magazine they have everything they have like a newspaper they have life and culture they have current events they have you know opinion pieces they have news they have lots of stuff
1: and it's explicitly feminist it's sort of like the Jewish Jezebel
0: yeah. With a little bit less um, inflammatory politics of Jezebel, I
1: think. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot more like fun.
0: Yeah, and a little bit less biased. Like clearly they do skew feminists and they are explicitly feminist. Jezebel can sometimes err onto the side of everything is misogyny. Um, I feel like, hey, Alma is a lot more, this is rooted in misogyny, but that doesn't mean you're a misogynist.
1: Or like, here's a fun article about Passover.
0: Right, Exactly. Uh, so yeah. So, hey, Alma, if you ever listen to my podcast, please stop rejecting my pitches. I know that they're all about sex and apparently too explicit for you. But anyway, I'm just going to go through the list. Number one of facts we didn't learn in Hebrew school. Pharaoh's daughter converted to Judaism. Did not know that.
1: In the article, it says that when Pharaoh's daughter found Moses in the river, she was going into the river to ritually immerse herself to convert to Judaism. There's a part of the conversion where you go into the water and like get reborn. It's where baptism uh, comes from. It's, it comes from the same tradition. Uh, So I love that when she goes to get Moses, she was actually there, not just taking a bath in the river, but actually like that was her moment of conversion and she sees Moses.
0: Is that a commentary or is that an actual thing?
1: All of these Passover facts are commentaries from a book called Exodus Rabbah, the commentary on Exodus.
0: So the idea here being it's trying to add context, but it might not necessarily be taken as 100% truth
1: or I think we should have a whole conversation about what midrash is. We have to talk about what midrash is.
0: Okay, do you give me give me the like 30 second summary of midrash. Midrash means
1: interpretation and it is either the interpretation of a law or very commonly the interpretation of a story by basically writing biblical fan fiction hot there's what happened in the bible and then there's the midrash so the midrash of pharaoh's daughter converting to Judaism for example is not explicitly mentioned in the torah but it also doesn't say that she didn't convert to Judaism so this is a midrash midrashim which is the plural of midrash Some midrashim are seen as almost as legitimate as the text itself. There are some that you learn about in Hebrew school as if it's actually in the Torah. So one example is Abraham smashing the idols of his father. That doesn't happen in the Torah. That is a midrash.
0: But we take it and we tell it as one of the stories of our people because it illustrates the point that we want people to learn, which is he rejected the previous gods and only accepted this one. And
1: the Torah doesn't say that he didn't do that. So He very well might have. All of these different midrashes, you can decide, basically, uh, whether you want it to be your head canon or not.
0: Cool. So kind of like how I don't believe the play is canon. The play? And by that, I mean the Harry Potter play. Fan fiction to me is like purely anything after book seven isn't canon, even if she writes it, in my opinion.
1: Everything after book six.
0: (laughs) We'll have that discussion on a future date. That is not this podcast. (laughs) But I will fight you. Okay. So next is number two. Miriam was a sex positive biblical babe. So it talks about how the Pharaoh said that, you know, all children who are born, who are male uh, by the Jewish people are going to be murdered. Uh, oh my God. What's her name? Miriam? Moses' mom. Oh. Uh... Yochavid. So Yochavid and and Moses' dad are basically not fucking uh, because he says, I'm not going to have sex with you because there's too much of a risk of pregnancy. And what's the point in having sex? Uh, once again, that goes back to the idea that he's saying, well, why would we have sex if you know procreation leads to nothing? Which is not Jewish, as we all know. So five-year-old Miriam convinces her dad to fuck her mom. Screw the stupid protest her dad was up to. Also, Miriam went to God being like, uh, why isn't Moses screwing Sipporah? And that's apparently why she got leprosy, which is not the version I was taught when they're wandering in the desert. It's, oh, Miriam was talking shit about Moses and that's why we don't talk <laughs> shit about people. And this one is saying that actually she went to God being like, Uh, Why isn't he fucking his wife? I also heard that Miriam is apparently like, she was saying like, oh, he should have married a Jewish woman. There's like so many conflicting stories about why Miriam got leprosy.
1: So the text in the Torah just says, uh, Zipporah said she spoke against Moses because he had married a woman from Cush. And Cush we think is either somewhere in South Arabia or the Horn of Africa. So he married a black girl and... People are not sure if it means Zipporah, who is Midianite, which is also in the sort of South Arabia area, or if she's talking about him divorcing Zipporah and marrying a new woman that she had a problem with.
0: So really, we have no idea what's going on here, but it seems like Miriam shouldn't have gotten leprosy unless she was being a racist. Um,
1: Yeah, right. We don't know. And With many women's voices in the Torah, the Torah doesn't expand on it. They give a lot more ink to all the things that the men were doing. And we just have to guess, like we don't know what Miriam's problem was. We don't know what she said. We just know that she got leprosy for saying it.
0: Number three, Pharaoh is a shady backstabber. Specifically, this is the same Pharaoh we find out according to this. It was the same Pharaoh that let the Jewish people onto the land during the time of famine with Joseph's time. And then later he was like, this is politically a bad idea. Now we're going to punish you. That is what this book is contending. We don't need to get into it too far. The next was the prophets had a secret code word. Cool. We also have a secret symbol. You'll see it on Star Trek. The gold calf gate, as opposed to Watergate. This one I learned in school, Uh, but I didn't know about the Sota ritual, which is mentioned in this article as well. Can you remind me? I didn't write down what the Sota ritual was. (laughs) Yeah.
1: So it's super interesting. There is this whole ordeal of the bitter water, it's called. If you suspect that your wife has cheated on you, you get her to drink this mixture. And um, if she's... I think if she's innocent, nothing happens. And if she's guilty, then like there's some sort of physical, it's, the Hebrew is weird. We're not sure exactly what it means. Maybe she miscarries, maybe she gets bloated. We don't really know. Um, but something happened.
0: This is pre-IBS when everything would blow you up. <laughs> and uh,
1: this midrash about the Exodus story is saying that when Moses destroyed the golden calf, and mixed it into the drinking water, he was basically um, forcing the Israelites to go through the ritual of the sotah because they had been the unfaithful wife to God. And this metaphor comes up again and again and again. Israel is the bad slut and God is the strict daddy dom.
0: Oh, man. So I want to add that as the average Jewish person who did have a Jewish day school upbringing, the Sotar ritual never came up. So I don't want <laughs> us to really
1: focus on. It's really obscure.
0: There's a lot of patriarchy in in all of our texts. We're not going to focus on shit that most people don't know about. Number six, Moses was born circumcised and super glowy. This is definitely fan fiction.
1: <laughs> what are you talking about? I'm pretty sure that is That is my headcanon now.
0: I mean, there are men who, like, it's like a birth defect if they're born circumcised, but, like, it's very rare. But I don't think they come out glowing. The three shepherds, a.k.a. Moses and Miriam and Aaron, weren't allowed into Israel. There's a lot of reasons as to go into why, but it's not that interesting for a sex podcast. I'm going to skip over it.
1: It's not that sexy.
0: No. The staff in the stone, which, by the way, I love fantasy novels. So the idea is that the staff Moses used to bring water from the wellspring when they're traveling in the desert, was passed down from Adam to Noah to Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to Joseph to Jethro, where it was planted in a garden. And then Moses pulled the staff from the earth like it was no big deal when he went to live with the Midians. And I was just like, oh my God, love this story. And just the idea that someone's like, hey, you know what was... You know, the sword in the stone is actually Jewish. Like it reminded me of of that. Yeah, yeah. Everything
1: comes from Greek. Like they say in Big Fat Greek Wedding, we have those people in Judaism too, right? Everything comes from Hebrew. Everything comes from Judaism. But this one is true. It is older than the King Arthur legend. So take that.
0: To make this dirty though, imagine if they weren't talking about a literal staff, but if they were talking about a metaphorical staff, the genetics of the penis of the Jewish men being passed down, even though Jethro isn't Jewish, so this metaphor doesn't pass. <laughs> but like, you know, planting is fucking sheep. Okay. Okay, I'm done. <laughs> then the last headcanon here is Pharaoh tried to strip Moses' mom and sister. That one's sexy. It is sexy. It has to do with the idea that they were the midwives and Pharaoh tries to fuck them.
1: Oh my God. The,
0: the midrush that Pharaoh's mom and sister are also midwives yeah. and they're also the midwives who are delivering Moses and all these Jewish babies and trying to hide them. And Yeah.
1: And Pharaoh tried to fuck
0: them. Apparently. You know what? Let's just move on to conversation topics because a lot of this is, as we said, it's Midrash. It happened. Maybe it didn't happen. It was fun. So it's
1: not in the Torah.
0: Why are we talking about Passover? The holiday that happens around Easter, right? Oh yeah. um, I say that so sarcastically.
1: (laughs) People always say, oh, you know, Jewish, I know Hanukkah and Hanukkah is not Judaism's high holiday. It's not the big one. The big Holidays in Judaism are the Jewish New Year and Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement that happened in the fall, and the other like big, big, big Jewish holidays, Passover. Jews who don't engage in Judaism for most of the year, a lot of them, will still go to a Seder on Passover.
0: Seder is a ritual dinner where you eat things in a particular order that are all ceremonial. And it's supposed to be fun if you do it right. But if you do it wrong, it's like horrible. This is basically our Christmas episode. If you guys <laughs> need non-Jewish metaphors. Okay. This is our special Christmas you know, episode, but but Passover.
1: How come there aren't any Passover jingles?
0: Avadim uh, hainu. There are. Yeah. <laughs> so make sure you want that as a jingle. I think that's a problem that when Jews are writing
1: for Christians, because most of the Christmas music music was written by Jews, we're able to put on this really happy face. But when we like sing the song of our people, it's all this like minor key, like sad stuff about like how we were oppressed.
0: Diane was pretty upbeat. Die, die, Die die hey, new, die new, die new. That one's like as upbeat as we get. And it's literally like, thank you, God. It would have been enough if you delivered us. But you also went and gave us a bunch of hot babes to fuck in the desert. I don't know. I'm just it's literally just a list of miracles that God did, but you you sing it, George. There's no hot babes. But I'm thinking, like, what would a Passover jingle even be like? Something about like like matzah? Like what would it even be? <laughs> I'm dreaming of a flat matza. Okay, wait, I've got a really good one. Okay, ready? A, a drug jingle that's specifically rooted in how matzah makes you constipated because it's like because of the fiber. It's like a constipation drug jingle that features matzah in it somehow. I think that would be the way to go. But on that note, let's talk about a little bit more like what how do Jews actually celebrate this? How does it relate to sex? We might get there. The idea here is satyrs are a Jewish family thing. Jonas family have the most epic satyrs. It doesn't hurt that their mom is a rabbi. I think the first female rabbi in Canada. Technically
1: the second, but for a long time, she was the only one because the first female rabbi in Canada did not last long and she she left. And so then my mom was the only one for a long time.
0: Your mom's a fighter. Yeah. So in my family, we have what we call the red and yellow Haggadah, which is like the very boring, most traditional one. It's not even conservative. It's like the one they give out a, the kosher sobe. Yeah. Like... <laughs> It's so bad. Okay. They say bondage two times and they say as it is written 23. So I made a drinking game because my family satyrs, they're not even close to orthodox satyrs in length, but going through this book is just so dry as it is written. There was, it's like literally reading Meeg's Rush in the most boring dry tone. You have to go around a circle and take turns reading it. And it's just not fun. So it says, um, as it is written. And every time it says, as it is written, you take a shot of whatever you've brought Here's another thing. You're supposed to drink four glasses of wine over the course of this ritually. My family gives you like those thimble shot glasses and they fill it with that. Yeah, it's like not even glasses. So I was like, fuck this. Started bringing my own personal (laughs) stash of wine to the seder. B-Y-O-B, seder? Yeah, they would have like the tiny thing of Manischewitz on the table and I would pull out four bottles of wine I'm sitting at the table (laughs) with my cousin. He's like, I'm sorry, what? I'm like, oh, this is all for me. But like, I'm happy to share. So I ended up sharing. So as it is written, you take a shot of the wine Obviously, at the four cups of wine, you drink the cup. And when it says bondage, as in house of bondage, you yell bondage really loudly and drain the cup. <laughs> That's the drinking game I came up with to survive my family saters. Also, it's fun to make a lot of dirty jokes because you're so bored and you're sitting there with your like vanilla family of like doctors and therapists and accountants and I'm not joking and teachers. I have a lot of teachers.
1: And you're getting super drunk while this is happening. So then you start giggling while you see the word bondage come up again. And you're like, Haha, and you, the daydream starts. I,
0: I should also add that I frequently would wear a shirt that says, you little horror." H-O-R-A-H, to my satyrs. So I was just sitting there just being like, I don't even want to say black sheep because I do have family members who thought I was funny. Not not most of them. Most of them were like, please shut up. But I'm just sitting there getting drunk in my You Little Hora shirt, yelling about bondage. Actually, I started doing that one in high school before there was even a drinking game because that's how bored I was.
1: The Hora is a Jewish dance performed at celebrations, especially bar mitzvahs and weddings, where we jump around in a circle with our arms with each other and sometimes lift someone up on a chair. Uh, That's, that's very funny.
0: Yona, what are your satyrs like?
1: Uh, So our satyrs usually go until midnight or one or even later. And we just talk. So we go through all the different sections, but we don't like stick to the page. Someone will read one little thing and then suddenly we'll all be uh, talking about our our own midrash, our own interpretation on this part of the story or this part of the Seder. And uh, very often my parents give out parts that they assign to different guests of the Seder. So when we reach one part of the book, somebody goes and like leads an activity based on it. It's very creative and makes things very interesting. No no two years are the same.
0: Yeah. So one year, I believe I went and you and your brothers had made a musical for a bunch of different portions and you had songs and jingles for every single section. So clearly you need to make it. It was actually (laughs) very fun. And then one year, uh, Yona and I were also roommates for a year. That was fun. So I believe I had to drop off a key for you or pick up a key we walk in and this was after one of my family's red and yellows. And my dad opened the door at 11 PM. And all you hear is like laughter and yelling and people are sitting on the ground playing board games. And it's not just any board game. It's like a custom made Passover board game that your family had made. And my dad just looks at that and he comes out and he goes, what is wrong with our family? (laughs) (laughs) This is what satyrs could be. And we're choosing to read in a monotone from the red and yellow and the same uncle tells the same holocaust story every year at the beginning last year or before the pandemic i actually made a bingo card to hand out to people that we handed out to to relatives that was like ray yells bondage uncle yell uncle tells the story of the silver cups even our family traditions that we're doing to try and survive the boredom are still not exciting enough that i had to make a bingo card
1: i just want to say that also uh, to bring this back to sex
0: I yep, think sorry. that this
1: is uh, an important thing for everyone to think about. The things that you do don't have to be boring, you can make things different and fun and experiment find what works and don't be like consigned to this vanilla white bread white matza thing that you've always done.
0: You don't need the red and yellow. You can sing and play board games. Yeah, and you know get Sometimes you just need to explore different options. Just
1: explore that house of bondage. Let's talk about bondage and Passover.
0: Yeah, please do cuz you you're the expert here. <laughs> so,
1: I think that the Passover story and the Passover Seder in general is so ripe with symbolism that is really sexual at its core. If we're engaging with the Seder as adults, you can see some of those places. And I don't know how much of it is intentional and how much of it is just uh, us being drunk and reading into it, but there's a lot of things that are there. Um, The biggest one being that throughout the Torah, God is seen as a husband and Israel as a wife, and worshiping other gods is seen as cheating on God, and God will punish Israel for going astray. And you know this can be seen as really negative, and for a lot of people it turns people off of the Bible, because they're like, oh wow, the God in the Bible is so harsh and terrible. But I choose to reread it, sort of tongue-in-cheek, uh, as being about a consensual BDSM relationship, because I think that's fun. Do
0: you think BDSM is fun? I think it's very fun. Okay, continue. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so God makes a like contract with the people of Israel at Mount Sinai. It's very, very consensual, very laid out. And the people agree to it. And then the language of the Torah, whenever it brings up this metaphor of God as the lover and Israel as the strayer, to me, it reads very much as God, as this like daddy dom. We usually, we use the language of father and master and king. And Israel is like, oh, if you translate, um, forgive me, father, for I have sinned, you could also translate that as.
0: Sorry, daddy, punish me.
1: (laughs) I've been naughty. And people keep sliding back towards idolatry and worshiping other gods. And especially when they're leaving Egypt, people try to go back to what they're comfortable with. And having um, escaped an abusive relationship myself, I totally understand this narrative of uh, wanting to go back to the abuse because it was familiar when you have something else that's healthy, but requires you to do work on yourself, and that God in this story is there to support the Jewish people to like recover from that traumatic experience in Egypt and have a new positive relationship in Israel with a good dose of what I would call BDSM protocols, like God has made up some random ass rules that we call the mitzvot, like oh you can't eat this, and uh, whenever you do this thing, then you have to ask me first in this way. And uh, then if we don't do those things, then we get punished.
0: Uh, Every time I talk with you, I feel like I learn so much. (laughs) It's so much fun. I have nothing to add to the BDSM conversation with that because clearly you've read much better into it than I have. And I love that reading. But this is also an example where we see interfaith marriage in the Torah with Moses and Sipora. It's right there. So talking about relationships and sex right there. This is, God didn't say you got to divorce Sipora, So God brings Moses to the Midianites where he meets Sipora and they fall in love and she comes back with him to help liberate the Jewish people. I think it also goes to show you that sometimes you need to leave the community you were raised with to get an outside perspective and really appreciate what is in the community that's of value and worth keeping.
1: The Passover story has these hints as well, that it was not just the children of Israel that were released from slavery in Egypt, that when they left, it was what's called a mixed multitude. And that the project of Israel was this really radical like slave revolt of all of these different oppressed peoples, including the tribes of Israel, but also including people like the Midianites and other diverse peoples who had been oppressed by Egypt, banding together to start a better life. It's not seen as an exclusive thing. The Midianites... Uh, including Moses's father-in-law, Jethro, and Moses's wife, Zipporah, are a very important part of this larger Jewish community plus. It's Jews for sure, but it's also allies. And that we can be together. We don't have to separate ourselves from the rest of the world in order to be secure. In fact, we do better when we are in relationship with other peoples as a nation, and also as individuals, and honestly, it's good for our gene pool too.
0: So, what I'm hearing is that the Jewish people should be polyamorous. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I'm taking. I don't from
1: think this. the Bible would approve of of that.
0: Well, that's actually not true. Men oh, had multiple true. wives. That's true, right? Like there was multiple wives throughout all of it, and that had to do with you know women couldn't have multiple husbands because then. Patrilineal you don't line know who the of inheritance. Is, yeah. yeah, but now that we don't care about that anymore, and we have DNA testing, I think that if if we look biblically, we should all be polyamorous.
1: Actually, you know what? You are you are right. You are right about that. I was thinking about the way that huh. God wants you to be exclusive with God and not worship also of other things. But you are right that in terms of our personal relationships, the Bible actually is very pro multiple marriages, intermarriages, all these things.
0: So I think it's very interesting that a lot of modern Judaism, once again, it's a lot more about the culture of where we live and not the culture of the Torah. Mm -hmm. You know, we should all just go back to biblical living with multiple partners and multi-generational households and big giant sex orgies on Purim and (laughs) house of bondage. House of
1: bondage. I mean, it's so tempting. The Jews always want to go back to the house of bondage. And so finally God learns how to give them that piece of the relationship that, that they need.
0: Yeah, Jews are so kinky that God's like, you want kink? I'll be your dom. You want someone to put you in shackles? Okay, Yeah. And here's here's how I would compare it. It's like lo- watching Fifty Shades of Grey and thinking that that's healthy, that's Egypt. And then you go out and you you read actual pieces of like literature written by people in actually kinky relationships that's coming from a consent-based model and being like, oh, so that was just rape. That was rape being disguised as sex, sexiness, sexy bondage, but that's not what it is. So you have like Egypt being Fifty Shades of Grey and God is like, "Uh, can I give you some actual literature written by actual people in the community, not someone fantasizing?
1: And I will say that it's a very common thing among people who have survived trauma to use BDSM as a way of healing that part of their life, to heal from the non-consensual abuse that they were subjected to, to use bondage as a tool to heal from it, to recontextualize those things in an environment of safety and consent. And I love the idea that all of the rules and regulations that we get from God are in the context of healing from the slavery, from the the negative bondage that we had in Egypt
0: bondage sounds scary and BDSM sounds scary. And let's be honest, there are a lot of people who fit into the aesthetic, the, you know, the leather, the whips, the chains. But for a lot of people, BDSM is just another aspect of play and exploration. So not everyone who's into BDSM has been traumatized in some way, but for people who have been, they will occasionally find space to play and explore in a safe, controlled environment that allows them to heal because it is at its essence play that you're doing with a trusted partner that you've negotiated boundaries around.
1: The most important part of any BDSM scene is the aftercare. Is when the scene is done and the play is over to like go back to that foundation right away. I don't know, the love and the care and
0: yeah, doing the love language of what do you need right now? And aftercare is for the the dom as well. Like aftercare is for everybody. It's not just something the dom does for the sub. You know, the the sub might need, you know, urgent aftercare but the dom also benefits from those snuggles and that love and that reassurance that like yes i did not actually hurt you and this was something we did together
1: yeah and it's it's important that after the scene that you reestablish, you know that that was pretend that was a scene that was hot but you know anything that was said or done is like not real it's play um and then when you're outside of the scene you're just like hanging out having lunch that that's when you discuss what you might want to happen in a scene, to happen in play. It's not something that you spring on someone because they can't give informed, complete consent if it's something that's being sprung on you when you're already in subspace.
0: You definitely don't renegotiate consent in the middle of a scene. You do not. That's definitely not a healthy thing to do because someone isn't in the right space to consent at that point and they might be swept up in it and then not feel good about it later. My friend Craig, who's a very knowledgeable uh, DM, he, for anyone who has seen any of my Shabari videos or Waxplay videos, like he's the, the dom in those videos. And he's just a really great guy. He talks also a lot about something called pre-care. The idea being that you also need to do things in advance. So when we're doing wax play, he gave me a list of things I need to do, which are moisturize. Every part of my body, moisturize, be really well hydrated. One other thing that we now do is I will immerse my feet in a hot bath so that they're not so cold that it's that much more shocking before I do wax. Like there's so many things that we do. Now he doesn't need to give me the list of pre-care because I know, but he'll check in and be like, did you do the things? And I'm like, yeah, I did the things. We're good to go. Eat a snack first. He'll also mention to other people who are aspiring doms that that part of pre-care is negotiating whether or not you do aftercare and what aftercare looks like to you because some doms don't like to do aftercare and that's something that your, your sub would need to know if that's what they're expecting from you. And even to go, like, what does aftercare even look like? That's a conversation you need to have when negotiating the boundaries and consent. So what would be the uh, the Exodus version of pre-care? So the Exodus
1: version of pre-care <laughs> is that God makes... Um, Like a covenant with Abraham, even before we get to the Exodus, I think God tells Abraham, here's what you're going to go through and here's how it's going to help you. And your family's going to be slaves in Egypt and blah, 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 this is going to happen. That's all
0: of the, yeah, the, uh, the dreams,
1: uh, or another example might be if we're not considering Egypt as part of God's scene with Israel. Uh, and then God found Israel sort of after Egypt and they're recovering from that relationship. God encounters Israel and Moses at the burning bush and goes through, you know, I'm going to get you out of here and you're going to be my people. And then at Mount Sinai, God says, here is what it means to be in relationship with me. And the people say, all the things that you have told us we will do.
0: I love this metaphor. See, reinterpreting the Torah for modern day... Modern-day use, right here.
1: Right here. So, you know, you've got Orthodox, Conservative, Reform, and BDSM.
0: Yeah, right there. Okay, so there's there's other uh, examples of dirty things in Passover that aren't just bondage. And I'm going to quickly—Yona and I tried to brainstorm a few of these, and they kind of go off the deep end, but we're doing our best because this <laughs> is— This is how we have all of our conversations, I think, about Judaism when they come up. So there is some hidden sexuality in the Seder plate. A Seder plate is a plate with symbolic foods on it. There's six of them. I'm not going to really get into it. But the idea being that each food symbolizes something else from the story that we're trying to remember. And then over the course of the meal, we try and eat the items from the plate. Some people don't. We're just too lazy. We just have it there ceremoniously. So the egg is there for fertility and spring and renewal. So right there, fertility, sexy times, procreation, sex. The other one that I pointed out is that there is a shank bone, uh, which reminded me of boner.
1: Yeah, at first this was just a joke. Ray was like, boner. And I was like, actually, there's a connection historically.
0: Tell me the the
1: historical connection. The reason that we have a lamb shank on the Seder plate is to represent the uh, Passover sacrifice of a newborn lamb. And Passover was the time when sheep would give birth. And because of that, the shank bone represents the birthing of the lambs. And that's connected to the cycle of nature and the general rebirth and fertility that is happening in the spring when all the snow is melting up here in the north.
0: You get horny again because you get sunlight. You're like, I feel sun. We're going to fuck now.
1: Yeah, the rainy season is over. It's not dark and rainy and depressing anymore. It's just like flowers and birds and happiness. And everyone's like, Hey, come over here.
0: One of the other things that some families choose to include on their Seder plate is an orange. And depending on who you are, it either is symbolic of feminism and the role of women and Miriam and Sipora and Yochavid, or it's a symbol of inclusion in general in the LGBT community.
1: Yeah, I think it's important to understand that uh, Judaism did not stop evolving 3,000 years ago. It didn't stop evolving 2,000 years ago. There are new traditions that are being you know, we were developed in the 70s or 80s or, you know, my family develops new Passover traditions that we try out every single year. And sometimes we'll do something different. And, you know, five years later, we'll find ourselves still doing it. Maybe somebody else will take the tradition from us. But the, the orange that many people have included on their Seder plate is a great example of how Judaism is still changing to this day.
0: The root of the story, I believe there was a rabbi who said, Uh, It was something like, there's a place for a woman on the bima as much as there is an orange on the Seder plate. So a bunch of families said, fuck you, there's a place for an orange on a Seder plate, and there's a role for women and clergy in Judaism. There's an
1: urban legend connected to the Passover Seder that... Professor Susanna Heschel was giving a lecture when one man stood up and yelled, a woman belongs on the bima like an orange belongs on the Seder plate.
0: The bima is the pulpit.
1: Where, yeah, where rabbis are. Yeah. In order to show that women do belong on the bima, that women have the right to a place in Jewish ritual and leadership, Susanna Heschel and others began to place oranges on their Seder plate.
0: But this might just be an urban legend this
1: isn't this is an urban legend the true story okay. from professor susanna heschel's own words at an early point in the seder i asked each person to take a segment of the orange to make a blessing over the fruit and eat the segment in recognition of gay and lesbian jews and of widows orphans jews who were adopted and all others who sometimes feel marginalized in the jewish community when we eat the orange segment We spit out the orange seeds to repudiate homophobia, and we recognize that in a whole orange, each segment sticks together. Oranges are sweet and juicy and remind us of the fruitfulness of gay and lesbian Jews And then Heschel uh, talks about the urban legend, saying, that incident never happened. Instead, my custom has fallen victim to a folktale process in which my original intention was subverted. My idea of an orange was attributed to a man, and my goal of affirming lesbians and gay men was erased. Moreover, the power of the custom was subverted. By now, women are on the bema, so there is no great political courage in eating an orange, because women ought to be on the meat eat because women ought to be on the bima. For years, I have known about women whose scientific discoveries were attributed to men or who had to publish their work under a male pseudonym. That it happened to me makes me realize all the more how important it is to recognize how deep and strong the patriarchy remains and how important it is to celebrate the contributions of gay and lesbian Jews and all those who need to be liberated from marginality to centrality. And Passover is the right moment to ensure freedom for all Jews.
0: And on that note, I think it's time for a commercial break. Do you want to join the deviants to finding elite and actually tell people about it? Are you, like me, a fuck demon? We are launching Sex News with Ray swag with these common phrases. We've got hats. We've got toots. That's beanies for you Americans. We've got sweatshirts. We've got crop tops. And as usual, all the art was designed by me, so it definitely has my personal flair to it. Check out the new designs at sharewithray.com slash merch slash SNWR. And pick up a piece to support the podcast today. We're back. Are you ready for the listener question, Yona? I'm ready. All right. Is there a connection between kinking Judaism or kink and Jewish identity from AGM?
1: So I think we spoke about this in terms of our connection to the uh, Passover story and the language of our father, our master, our daddy.
0: Maybe here the question is coming from a place of how many Jews we know from sex clubs, from kinky places who are involved in kink and BDSM. Maybe it's because we also have a large Jewish population in the city that we live in. But it seems like in a lot of these spaces, you will not go without running into another Jewish person. Well,
1: this is an important thing in every community. No matter how small your community is, people with similar experiences tend to find each other. And so it's very often if you are Jewish or if you're connected to the Jewish community, that suddenly you'll find Like everyone is Jewish around you. This is true for so many other communities as well. I know for myself, I will find myself in community with other disabled and neurodivergent people or with other trans and non-binary people. It's very easy to suddenly be like, wow, it seems like everyone is this tiny minority. And I think a lot of that comes from when you have that experience or a connection to that experience, you suddenly find yourself just connecting to those people and like, and building those circles organically. So I don't think that Jews are are overrepresented in that community, but I will say that there's some things in Jewish culture that support a connection to the kink world. So for example, uh, Judaism being a bit more open about sex and sexuality and not having such uh, an amount of shame over it as some other traditions, and uh, Jewish culture being very openly uh, sexual, like. We talked about Sarah Silverman. Sarah Silverman. I love her. Yeah, and we could talk about all sorts of Jewish comedians who use sex as the punchline. Yeah.
0: Amy Schumer, Eliza Schlesinger. I'm going to keep naming (laughs) female comedians because I like their jokes better. I am not a psychologist, but I have been reading a lot about intergenerational trauma. And we did just talk about how people who sometimes go through a trauma might like to explore BDSM as a way of healing from it. I am not saying that all Jews are kinky because of our intergenerational trauma from however many... I'm talking Ashkenazi Jews in the Holocaust. I'm talking Ethiopian Jews in the way the Israeli government treated them. There's, There's a lot of different ways that the Jewish people have been traumatized. So for all we know, you know, we've just been into BDSM from an earlier age specifically because of that. Who knows? It's a theory. I would not quote beyond any of that.
1: I think that for a lot of people who grew up being seen as male grew up with an insecurity of the way that our general culture looks at Jewish masculinity as as not dominant. And a lot of people who grew up being treated as women, whether they still identify that way or not, ended up being told they were too loud, they were too assertive. And BDSM allows you to reclaim that either by being a dom or by getting to give up control. And so whatever narrative you were given as a child about how you were too quiet or you were too loud, you were too assertive or you were too meek, being in BDSM is sometimes a way to either reclaim that narrative or take a break and be something else.
0: That's a lovely thought. I think we explored a lot of different ways that kink and Judaism are linked. I'm thinking we got the trauma perspective. We talked about the biblical perspective. We just talked about the social perspective. I think we covered... A lot of different potential facets of that question i'm not sure if there's one clear answer we can give because unfortunately there isn't a lot of research being done into kink and as yona said earlier there isn't a lot of explicit text about certain concepts and topics so i hope that answered your question and if not feel free to message me again thank you for listening yona where can people contact or follow you
1: uh you can find me on twitter at yonasiena
0: you can follow the podcast at Sex News with Ray on Facebook and Instagram and submit a listener question through sharewithray.com slash podcast or email sexnewswithray at gmail.com. Follow me at wifebeyray on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. Instagram and Twitter are pretty much the same content. TikTok is different. That's where I live. Razor LaTeX on Instagram and OnlyFans. This podcast is engineered and produced by Dave Meisner and is hosted at sexnewswithray.podbeam.com. Theme music by Blank and Brilliant. Special thank you to Blue Microphones. Photography for our logo is by Dolly Shots. Photography.